Today on the podcast, we're talking with Jared Gadbaugh. He is the executive chef and owner of Oak and Real, a two-star Michelin chef originally from Garden City, goes to New York, gets to Michelin stars, comes back, opens this restaurant. We talk about it next on the Michigan's Best Podcast. And as I said, my guest today from Oak and Real, executive chef and owner, Jared Gadbaugh, how are you, my friend? It is great to see you. Yeah, great to see you as well. Could be better, could be worse with the way the Lions game ended last night, but you know, we're happy just to to have some relevance here at the end of January. Yeah, I think look, to derail just a half a second, I feel like we got farther this year. Like next year I felt like we were going to be here, so does it suck? Yeah, it sucks, but I'm I'm excited for next year. Um, uh, me too. Let's so let's talk about Oak and Real. Obviously, my wife got up this morning and she's like, "You know it's a crime against nature that you're going to interview this incredible human being and you haven't been to the restaurant yet." So I apologize for that. That said, I am so excited to talk to you and I want to go back to the beginning before we talk about the restaurant. And your time, you're obviously from Garden City, you're from Michigan, you go to Michigan State. What, you know, through my investigating you, I've heard you talk in a number of podcasts about kind of like that, that hero's journey, but what happens at MSU that you decide to go to FCI, to the French Culinary Institute? What is, what is that leap? Growing up, we always had, had gatherings at my house and it was something to look forward to, whether it was high school and college, friends would come home. My, my parents were the, the cool parents so we could, you know, drink and, and hang out and and do you know what we wanted to do during those times you know once once I was kind of eighteen and and on my own and and that's that early formation of of you know having gatherings with people and friends around food is what kind of started my love of food I I, I grew up really as an adventurous eater and and my dad was a good cook and my grandma was a great cook and. And so I, I, you know, but I still, I grew up in Garden City. So it's not like I was exposed to a whole lot of variety, cultural, you know, differences. And, and so I went to Michigan State and I think it was a combination of, I was not overly good in academics. <laughs> okay. It didn't, I'd never, I, I'm a big fan. I like, I thrive in that, that, you know, that immediate timeline, you know, those, those deadlines of like, you know, I got to cook this in four minutes. I got to cook this in four minutes. These kind of shorter increment, you know, deadlines, I realize are more, more geared towards my, you know, approach to work. You know, I kind of grew up in the car dealership and working with my hands and long hours. And, and it was just all just kind of, I think all these small moments steered me towards the kitchen. And when I got to Michigan State, I kind of, you got to pick a major. And I like cooking. I thought maybe hospitality. So it's just, I think I just kind of blindly said, all right, let's try hospitality business. And, and then they forced you to do internships. And I like the, the, the kitchen aspect versus the front of house aspect or the, or the front desk or whatever it might be, whether it's a hotel or restaurant or anything. So, you know, as I started doing these internships and, and taking on jobs, I realized that I really, you know, enjoyed the kitchen and I was, I had a, at least a decent base talent in the kitchen. And that just continued to grow. And, and again, I graduated college. I moved back in with my dad. I was working at the car dealership again. And I think I just had these one of these moments where I just, I looked and I was just like, man, if I don't do something, I'm going to be sitting in this, you know, I'm going to be sitting in his desk. He was a service manager, you know, 20 years down the road. And, and I don't think that's what I wanted with my life. And, and at the time, my brother was living in New York City and 
And I was up late at night and I saw an advertisement for the French Pony Institute. And I said, hey, let me apply. It's a six month program. At least it gets me out of the door. It gets me out of the city, you know, out of the state and, and puts me, you know, in the running for a different path in life. Frame this up for me. What what year is that that you kind of see this TV show and, you know, the, this after hours commercial and head to New York City? So that must have been 2001, 2002. Gotcha. Uh, I, I moved to New York in December of 2002. So, you know, I lived in, in Dearborn with my dad after college. I graduated from Michigan State in 01. Uh, and I lived in Dearborn for about a year and a half. And then you know, packed out my stuff and, and headed to New York. And then you finish the Culinary Institute. And do you end up at EMP, 11 Madison Park? Do you end up there first? Or where did you go right after the Culinary Institute? No, I actually had a full-time job while going to school as well. So I'd, I'd get up at 7, I'd go to school. Until 3, I'd walk over to... This this little kind of French Asian fusion restaurant in, in Greenwich Village. Work there till midnight, party until three, wake up, repeat. And from there, I got fired from that job for you know just being a young stupid kid and running my mouth. So I had a couple of places kind of in between. I actually rose to be a sous chef before I went to EMP. And then kind of decided I wanted to just take a step back and learn a little bit more. And, you know, I kind of stumbled upon 11 Madison Park. It was, it was right when, when Daniel Hom had kind of come over from Campton Place in California. And, and I applied, I, I saw a credit ad and I kind of knew Danny Meyer owned it at the time. And I, you know, I knew his reputation. And honestly, I walked in there and was just like, flabbergasted by what they were doing and it was just like whoa you know it was kind of the one of those moments of of epiphany where you know you realize that you don't know and you know you still got a lot of work to do to achieve your goals so i took a job there and, and and managed to stick it out for a year and a half yeah, you you had said in other interviews, which I found interesting because from an outsider's perspective, right, Will has this book about unreasonable hospitality and it seems like it's this, you know, I think it's very easy for someone who's not in your position to romanticize. You've watched two seasons of The Bear, you watched The Food Network, you th- right? Like you got this idea, but it was, you said it was like tough there, really tough. It was. I mean, it was, everything had to be as absolute perfect as you could make it. And there was no compromise. There was no learning curve. It was, it was just sink or swim. And there wasn't any coddling. I mean, this was still 15, 16 years ago, you know, it was before all these movements and, you know, and you can't say, you can't do these things anymore. You can't act this way anymore. And, you know, and, and Daniel is a, is a chef who's been cooking since he was 15 years old and some of the you know, most, you know, around the world and some, and I'm sure he was, he was raised in a similar fashion. And, and I know by talking to him and, you know, and hearing him now, he's, I'm, you know, he's kind of calmed down a bit. I mean, the guy doesn't even shave anymore. You know, he's, he's scruffy. And if you walked in with any sort of scruff, it was, you know, turn around, go to the, go to the Dwayne Reed and dry shave yourself in the, you know, in the, in the back, you know, bathroom. So, I know that he's changed, but, but at the time, yeah, I mean, it was, it was, it was a very difficult place and, and we went through a lot of, lot of turnover and we worked a lot of hours because there was so few people, but I could honestly say in that year and a half, I mean, I, I established a foundation that would allow me to, to go and work with Michael White and, you know, get 
offered the job that eventually you know led to being the chef of Maria and all of that came with as well. You end up at Maria right before we kind of join up with Oak and Real. That first year you get the first Michelin star and then obviously you leave there 9 years later having had two Michelin stars. Was that what was that process like? Like talk us through for people who don't understand the act, the actual art of getting the Michelin star, keeping the Michelin star, adding a Michelin star. Can you talk a little bit about what that's like? I can talk about what it was like then and it was it was a whirlwind and it was and now as a business owner and trying to to understand how a business goes about doing that and garnering that attention and but it's 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 almost you know it's a it's a series of dominoes you know you someone says you're great and then someone else says you're great and then someone else says you're great and before you know it everyone whether they've eaten there or not you know, on national, you know, it starts with local and it moves to national and then it moves to global and, and it just becomes this, you know, the tsunami of, of success. And we won, you know, the James Beard Award and, you know, best of all the cranes and, and, you know, food and wine and all the Esquire, all those things. So that first year, you know, I think it was, you know, just kind of right place, right time with, the, with Michael being kind of that hot young Italian chef in New York City. Michelin guide had just come out in New York City. And so, you know, there was, we were kind of like the, the first ones to get a star. But for me as the, you know, the chef, I mean, Michael White was my boss and but but he gave us free reign to, to run the kitchen. And we did, obviously, you know, very well for him, you know, with his guidance and, and general oversight. But for us, it was just every day, you know, doing our best every day we were young and creative and i had you know i would dream about dishes and i'd wake up and i'd have post-it notes all over my walls and my now wife was like just amazed by my brilliant mind and it was just like <laughs> a book you know i just like i like food i like you know it was before instagram it was before you know you had to get get to buy cookbooks and get inspired and i mean it, so it was it was an amazing time and I was surrounded by amazing people that all wanted the same thing and we're all working towards the same thing. And we were, we were getting rewarded every step of the way, you know, we were winning awards. We were getting invited to, you know, I got to travel the world with Relay and Chateau and cook on, on all on like five different continents and open restaurants in Hong Kong and Istanbul. I mean, it was just this magical time, but it was very hard work. You know, we would do 500 to 600 covers a day wow. every single day you know, lunch and dinner. And it was just like, you just get your ass handed to you every single day for, for, you know, nine years, essentially. Fast forward to now you are back in Michigan. The restaurant is Oak and Real. When did this idea start to come about? Like what was the pieces and parts that lead you from New York and two Michelin stars back home to open Oak and Real? What was that sort of Venn diagram so it, it was always my intention to, to come back to Michigan. I always wanted to be here, to raise my family here. New York City is a very hard city to raise a family and to get ahead and to own things. And I mean, it's, it's extremely difficult, especially as a lifetime cook. And that's what I am and was, you know, making nothing, you know, making pennies and in a city that's very expensive. So it was always kind of the plan opening a seafood restaurant didn't, I knew it would be a restaurant. I didn't know what it would be. So when I got back, I kind of met the guys at Motor City, Matt and Stacy, his wife, 
Florida City Seafood. And and I actually got invited. Luciano invited me to kind of a a dinner that everybody was doing at Baco at the time, right when we moved back. And so I got to meet a lot of local chefs and I got to, you know, meet meet Matt and Stacy. And I said, all right, you know, once I kind of checked their situation out of the garden, I think we can do seafood. I because I didn't know. I didn't know if Michigan had enough variety, if it had, you know, if we got good quality or if we got just the scraps from Chicago or or how it worked, you know. So when we moved back, I I I I just started looking for a space and I wanted a bigger space and so that I didn't have to have a lot of different spaces and and so I just started the process, the life, the the, you know, the long process of finding a space, raising money, getting a bank to to take me seriously, to to help me, you know, get over the the final hurdle of of financing, and and then it, you know, and then we were about five weeks out, and that was March of 2020, and we all know what happened then. Yes, and, we do. And then. We've just been going since then. So, and, and you actually physically opened though between the two closures, right? Like you, you're obviously doing the process in 2020, but you open the doors right in that in that sort of sweet spot. That's probably not the right terminology, but right there. Yeah. Yes, sure didn't feel sweet. <laughs> but yeah, in September 10th of 2020, we opened the doors at whatever 25 percent occupancy, and it was. It was out of necessity, necessity, sure. you know, huge backer that is, you know, never ending pockets. It was myself and my family and my, some of my friends and, and a, a number of people that kind of cobbled together the financing needed for the, this, this restaurant. And so September kind of came around or, or, you know, the months leading up to that kind of came around and I just tried to find five or six people that wanted to plunge headfirst into serving people without masks on indoors and try to build a brand because I didn't, I didn't have a way to pivot. I didn't want to build a, a fast casual. I mean, I had a, a concept that I needed to build so I couldn't just say, all right, I've got, you know, I'm going to do takeout for, you know, the next right. three months. Right. Right. I didn't, didn't have, I didn't have, you know, any, any following. I didn't have anything. So it was, it was challenging, but you know, we ultimately, we're able to kind of forge forward and we're still here today. Now, how has this been for you? I heard you on another podcast talk about how, you know, at the start of your career, right, there, there was this idea that if you were just a good chef, that would carry the restaurant. People would come to eat your food and and things have changed. So, you know, here you are the Monday after the Lions lose talking to an idiot that you've never talked to before. Like, is this, is this sort of brand building something that you enjoy or is this another difficult part of the job to kind of build a brand in a different direction than what maybe you wanted to do or like to do those that know me and if you you, you haven't been in the restaurant which as your I, I, I promise i will fix that i promise i like being in the kitchen i like to cook i like to make the food the best that i can possibly make it i don't i don't have an issue going to the dining room but I, I have, I do have an issue with control and I like to make sure that, that the food is always exactly the way I want it so that our guests receive the, you know, what they came to expect. And it's something that I need to work on personally to, to kind of put more faith in, in the people around me and allow them to grow in the same way I was allowed to grow. And it's, it's definitely something that 
that I'm working on as I mature in my career and and you know and and my time here in in, in Detroit and and I realize that there's there's more to it and and it requires constant effort and like I said before it's not as easy here because you know there's not a New York Times to review us you know there's not someone that's going to come in and say this is a good restaurant you guys should eat here uh, there are a number of kind of small things, which what we're doing here just to kind of get more and more exposure. But I'm constantly amazed at at how many people just really have not even heard of Open Real or you know don't know our story or anything like that. So it's it's up to me to just continue to you know put my head down and and you know work towards building that brand more on a, on a daily basis and so that it can continue to feed the, the, the people of, you know, our, our clients and, and as well as, you know, allow our staff to kind of grow and, and learn and, and make mistakes on my time versus on there when they branch off into their own restaurant. Does that reflection change maybe the way that you look at experiences you might've had with past employers, your ability to kind of be in the driver's seat now? Is that, have you found that you look back on the past differently because of that reflection or not so much? I, I, I generally am a very thoughtful individual and I'm always thinking of ways to of mistakes I've made. I've got two young kids. Obviously I want to not make the same mistakes that my parents made. And, and as a boss, not making the same mistakes that, that bosses have made for me or, or with me. And so I, I do. Yeah. I mean, I see I'm, I'm much more mature now than I was 27 years ago when I started sure. this path. I I have more experience. I have global experience. I've I've been around a lot of people. You know, I always say I'm like the the Matthew McConaughey of of the kitchen. You know, I get older and and everyone around me stays the same age. So, <laughs> you know, you're constantly have these opportunities to to mold the minds of future chefs and and managers and and it's it's in my opinion, the most important job that I have. And it's, it's something that I'm constantly thinking about so that I can uh, give them the tools that they need to succeed. And the reality of, of how difficult it is. It's, it's so easy to be a part of a boomingly successful restaurant. All you got to do is staff it, keep it moving, but to be a part of something that's not so successful is it's a lot it requires a lot more work it's a lot more stressful it's it's a lot more difficult so it's but there are learning opportunities there and, and let's be real not everyone's gonna have you know a marea in their lifetime and you know it's more important to be able to to know how to how to make make what you got work than to be you know than to be a part of something that's just guaranteed but both are important. So hopefully, you know, as we move forward, people around me get, get kind of both exposures. Now on both Instagram and TikTok, you can get a pretty good sense of what the food looks like, what the space looks like. Obviously, it's not the same as being there, but you alluded to earlier that you're surprised that people aren't familiar with Oak and Real. So for people who might be listening and might not be familiar, what is the elevator pitch you typically give to people of what Oak and Real is and why they should go check it out? We are a, an Italian restaurant, primarily focused on seafood. We strive daily to provide plates that are recognizable, ingredients are recognizable, and 
pay homage to those great ingredients instead of muddling them with superfluous garnishes and microgreens and things like that. I want the ingredients, we want the ingredients to, to speak for themselves, to sing, you know, to be boldly flavored and balanced and, and heavily steeped in, in tradition and, and, you know, the, the fundamentals of, of cooking, you know, great stocks, great sauces, you know, cooking techniques, you know, homemade pastas, you know, there's, there's so many basics that a lot of people glaze over now in search for that new, like shiny technique or, you know, plating style or whatever that, you know, I'm, I think that we're more old school and that we're, you know, what you see on your plate is, is, is recognizable. It's delicious. It's cooked properly. It's balanced. Uh, it's creative. It's seasonal. It's local. It's sustainable. So that's, that's kind of where, where we're at. And we're heading into Valentine's Day, and it's the perfect chance for you to book a table for Valentine's Day. Yeah. Talk to me about the upright. What was the the impetus for starting something like that, and how do people access the the speakeasy? So the upright is a cocktail bar in the lower level of our of Oak and Reel. It is Oak and Reel. The, the the building space is large. It's got a large footprint, and I. I just took it all when I when I bought it. I said, "All right, I can I can make do. I know what it's like to to need more space." Hindsight, I might have picked a smaller space, but you know, it's it's uh, like the upright is is kind of an opportunity for us to allow our staff to grow as well. You know, when I have a great bar team uh, and they want to show off, they can kind of flex their muscles upstairs with more food friendly cocktails. Whereas downstairs, they can kind of go off off chart a little bit and and be more creative. And, and it's just, it's like having a second business, like having a second restaurant without having a second, you know, building without more brick and mortar. So it does allow a little bit more. It allows me to, to kind of promote my staff and, and allow them to grow. And, and, and it provides a, a great opportunity for you to have an after dinner drink or a, a pre-dinner drink or you know, as the neighborhood continues to grow, hopefully it'll become a, a great neighborhood staple. Last question I will leave you with is you seem to be the perfect person to answer this question. For the past couple of years, I have been transfixed on this idea and you've answered it sort of, but I actually want to figure if I can dig a little bit deeper. I've been transfixed, possessed, if you might, about why Chicago has 143 Michelin stars and the entire state of Michigan has zero. And I'm wondering, are, are, you, our, are you our guy? Will you bring us a Michelin star? That, that's my question. You have to pay Michelin. I think it's five hundred thousand dollars to even. <laughs> okay, that might explain it. Okay, to consider the so the state visit Detroit or you know sure yep. Chicago, somebody would have to pay. Restaurants could not do it, so somebody would have to pay. So Denver just did this. Boulder just did this. Aspen. So essentially, it's it's some sort of organization that agrees to to get Michelin's attention, and then Michelin would come and do a a study to see if it was worth their time and then they if they said yes then it would be up to the operators to decide whether they wanted to go after a michelin star and that's it's not a cost you know it's a it's a costly endeavor it is difficult as is to operate you know without saying all right i got to get new plates and yep. yeah yeah well, new silverware and new wine glasses and and you can get a michelin star as as kind of off the beaten path you know, there's some food stalls and things like that that have Michelin stars, but 
in this day and age, I think it's, 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 you really have to stack a lot of things together in order to achieve it. You know, your service has to be great. Your decor has to be great. Your food has to be great. So it's, it's difficult. I'm actually having a conversation with our, our magazine later on about the same thing. Cause it's, it's something that's on a lot of people's minds, but there are so many layers to it that, you know, I'd love to put my hand up and say, give me a Michelin star because it'd be great for my staff, it'd be good for their, their resumes. It'd be great for tourism and, and, you know, bringing more people to Milwaukee Junction instead of, you know, the downtown, yep. uh, midtown area. So sure. Would I love to have one? Yes. But, you know, it comes with a lot of stress. It comes with a lot of expectations and, you know, as a chef, it's it's really hard. It's hard to read reviews, and you put your life on this on these plates every day. And you know, to have people just you know, you just the world is one big review. I mean, all you got to do is go online, and you can find out yep. what people think about your show. Yep, what think people think about everything. You know, and it's just like, and, it's, and it can be really hard to to take stick the criticism and to feel not. You know, so there's there's some some pluses and minuses to to what I think Michelin would do for. Permission. Jared, this has been an absolute blast. If people want to reach out to Oak and Real, just oakandreal.com, or is there a better way for them to do that? Oakandreal.com. All right, my friend. Have a awesome rest of the season, and uh, I will come see you very soon, I promise. I look forward to it. Thanks for having me.